welcome to the 28 Dales Later podcast. My name's Steve Wharton. Together with Natalie Wilson, Johnny Campbell and some guest presenters that we've got lined up, we're celebrating the landscape and heritage of Northern England. I'm from the northwest coast of England. I grew up in Ulverston and a seaside holiday or day trip meant one of two things for me. It was either the beautiful but overlooked dunes and white sands of Roanhead near Barrow in Furness or Morecambe the coastal town that they forgot to close down, as sung by the Smiths in Every Day is Like Sunday. However, now that I have a Yorkshire side to my family, I, at the ripe age of forty-two and four-fifths, embarked on a pilgrimage that has been practised for the last hundred and fifty years. I went on a day trip to Filey, a seaside resort about forty miles north of the Humber and eight miles south of Scarborough. And you know what? It was a bloody good day out, even though the heavens opened the moment we got there. As the thunder rumbled inland and the clouds peeled themselves apart, what hit me immediately was the quality of the light and colours, so many blues shimmering in the receding tide and reflected on the wet sands. I'm used to the flat expanses of the west coast, but trips to Northumberland and to here have convinced me that the East Coast has a very different character and qualities. Finally developed in the 1800s from a sleepy fishing village into a tourist-filled sleepy fishing village, any major development for tourism being confined to the Butlins camp, which has now been redeveloped as the country's largest collection of coastal holiday homes, a kind of seaside centre parks. Filey Town has not been an obvious victim of over-tourism or flashy development, which means it retains a charming character in its townhouses and modest prom, where the weathered red metal crazy golf lobster is about as garish a thing as you'll get. As I said earlier, I've never been here before, but the place reeks of nostalgia. I left the picnic blankets and old red tractor on the beach, drawn towards the rocky mass that thrusts out into the sea, drawn towards the brig. Following the clay cliffs to the north of the bay, under the Carnes Peninsula, I tread a precarious path over slippy, popping seaweed to join the walkway, which itself has segments that have been washed away over the years. The plans that man had have been thwarted by nature. The cliffs are amazing in their brash exposure of each layer that formed them, and the rocky outcrop which juts out from underneath. Looking back, the tilt of the strata becomes obvious, and you can see a layer that starts off underwater on the south side, hanging a good 20 foot higher on the northern side. The brig has been a birdwatching destination since Thomas Alice wrote of purple sandpipers on the rocks in 1844, but the conversion of the old cafe into a hide and much of the management of this area has been thanks to the efforts of the Filey Bird Observatory and Group, formerly the Filey Brig Ornithological Group, who have been recording sightings since 1976, and now, rather appropriately, post their daily tallies on Twitter. You can check out their website for an interesting history of the group, and read about how the original cafe was washed out to sea. I go out onto the brig. Oh, and it's wild, in a good way. 
The sea is not exactly rough, but there are waves breaking over the north side of the brig. Along the south in the bay, it's nice and calm. There are some fishermen just letting the nets out, dwarfed by the cliffs of Flamborough Head. There are some beautiful sapphire rock pools either side of me, ringed by kelp and with beds of purple seaweed. I scramble along onto a shelf on the north side of the brig, about eight foot lower than the path. Some small blobs have caught my eye. Dark, purpley brown in colour and averaging five centimetres across. I wonder at first if they're a swarm of jellyfish, but later find out they are close cousins, beadler anemones. Their tentacles withdrawn until the tide rises again. They sit there as a reminder of the duality of places by the sea, especially when you think about the resorts in winter. There are plenty of tales from here, of smugglers and pirates. How the brig is the back of a dragon that was tricked by the townsfolk and plunged into the sea to wash sticky parking cake out of its mouth. And there's real history too. The sea battle of Flamborough Head was fought in these waters in 1779. The villain of that day was John Paul Jones, Scottish by birth but founder of the American Navy who had attacked the Cumbrian harbour of Whitehaven a year and a half previously. But I like a story that I found in a collection by folklorist Joseph Jacobs. Long ago, in the Yorkshire Wolds, there was a baron who was also a learned magician. On the day his son was born, the baron drew his astrological chart and discovered that his son was fated to marry a girl born on the very same day, but she would be born to a very, very poor family. And the boy and the girl would be married on the day they both turned 15. He sent his servants to search for the girl, and later that week visited her family in a tumble-down cottage in the shadow of York Minster. The poor father of the girl told the baron how much he had been fretting about how to feed his children, who now numbered six. The baron offered to take the baby and bring her up on his estate, doing lowly but honest work as she grew up. Such was the baron's charm that the girl's father agreed, but not one mile from the poor man's cottage, the baron flung the girl into the river ooze. Wrapped in so many layers as she was, the girl floated downstream to a fisherman's house and the fisherman's family raised her. She grew up to be a beautiful girl, and one day when the baron was hunting, he saw her. His charm flashing once more, he offered to divine her fortune by astrology. When she told him that she did not know the date of her birth, and that she had been found in the river nearly fifteen years ago, he knew that this was the girl he had tried to drown. He instead pretended to read her palm, and saying that she was destined for a better life, offered her a job on his brother's estate near Scarborough. He sent her with a sealed letter, which told his brother to kill her. On her way to Scarborough, she was attacked by robbers. They read the letter, and as the girl was obviously poor, they decided it would be much more fun to alter the letter to the baron's brother, to tell him to marry the girl to his nephew, and that the baron would be joining them afterwards at the wedding feast. This mischievous plan was carried out, and the baron's son and the poor girl married on the day they both turned fifteen. Arriving at his brother's mansion, wondering what the reason for the party was, the baron flew into a rage when he discovered what had happened. 
He dragged his daughter-in-law along the sea cliffs, where she begged for her life. Unable to bring himself to throw her in the water a second time, he instead threw her gold wedding ring into the sea and told her that she should not return without it. The girl fled south along the coast, finding work in a kitchen of a fine house near Filey. One day, by chance, the Baron came to dinner at that house. She was shocked to learn he was there, and her hands trembled as she gutted the fish for dinner. Her fingers found something hard and smooth in the fish. From the guts of that sea creature she pulled her wedding ring. With sudden inspiration, she cooked the fish and its thick sauce to the best of her ability. The guests were so impressed with the fish that they wolfed it down. The Baron ate so greedily, he didn't notice the ring in his portion of fish until he was choking on it. He coughed and spluttered and turned red in the face. Up came the girl from the kitchen, and she gave the Baron an almighty smack on his back. The ring shot from his mouth, and the red-eyed Baron stared at it. He slowly turned to see his violent saviour, and realised who she was. The Baron realised that he could not fight fate, nor this girl's determination, and so she lived happily with her new husband, and a father-in-law who kept out of her way. Walking back off the brig, I'd seen no seals or dolphins, although the birdwatching group reported that a harbour porpoise had been seen later that afternoon. But I'd taken my chance, and when it comes to matters of fate, I believe you've got to be in it to win it. So I head back to town to see if my luck fares any better in the amusement arcade instead. Thank you for listening to the 28 Days Later podcast.